Think you're smart, huh? The guy that hired Hughes. He'll just do the same to you. Oh, criminals in this town used to believe in things. Honor. Respect. Look at you. What do you believe in, huh? What do you believe in? I believe whatever doesn't kill you simply makes you stranger. Trent. Oh, Trent. <laughs> Hi, Parth. Hello. Hi, Parth. What have you what what have you been eating? What have I been eating? Hmm, what a great question. You see, friend of the show, previous guest of the show, Sophia. So, oh, so, oh, Sophia. Friend of the show, Sophia Alexis in the booth. P- Parth, is that you? Wait, another in-person recording, and now we have. Wait, Trent, Trent, Trent. There's someone on your side. There's who, someone on your side. Who might that be? Friend of the show of times two, Jackson Clark. It's me. Is seen in the Live Die Repeat and. Five Bloods. Yep, episode three, and tune into our Gone Girl episode to hear Sophia Alexis. Why thoughts. did she give it a two out of ten? Check yeah, it out. We we may never know. But to to answer, maybe your... because of the bad sexual politics. Well, okay, maybe to give you an answer on what we ate. Uh, Sophia's parents took us both out to dinner at Sahara. What they ate as a right. unit? Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, Jackson and I sadly can't speak. We didn't eat something. You know, Lady in the Tramp style. You two aren't madly in love. I made couscous, sad, and alone. Up to this point, Sophia Alexis had only been referred to as friend of the show, and now all of a sudden emotions are involved. I I, I never said that we were madly in love. We're just, we're just, um, we're good friends. We're very good friends. This is the most people we've ever had on the pod at once. Oh, actually. That's not true. Oh, the the interviews. Yeah. uh, The double interviews. Pascal and Jennifer Rudnicki. Yeah. Um. Trial the Chicago Seven. Mm, that was a movie. That was a movie that we covered. But, but, uh, Trent. More importantly, this is this is a momentous one, isn't it? Ah. Yeah. This is. Wait, uh, wait. Answer, answer what you've been eating quickly. Um, Trent worked on set today, and there were noodles involved. Wait, did you have craft services on set? It's funny. Trent, as the production assistant, was almost primarily responsible, as people kept saying crafty, and I was like, you know, chuckling. I was like, ha <laughs> Wow, what a chuckle. Yeah, because that's the Wait, name. you're the chuckler? That's the name of the show. <laughs> Jackson and I were talking on the walk over here about how the Joker doesn't tell that many jokes, and that... He made a complaint about the Riddler. Ah, and yeah, I thought I, my jokes were bad. Ah. I hope that Paul Dano's Riddler is not just a Heath Ledger like, rip-off copy. You know what I mean? Because they're yeah, the same character. Parth, what are your five seconds on Jim Carrey's Riddler? Wonderful. Love it. Part he of my childhood. He only needed three seconds. I would have said not very good, not very good. So it seems we'll, like... We'll get into the... Oh, wait, wait. Okay, okay. Jackson, say your shit. What did you eat quickly? I already said I had... Couscous, couscous, couscous bro. Okay, okay. Let's cut to the intro, because I have to refute this shit, okay? But, uh, All right, we'll Harry. see you on the other side of the intro jingle. <laughs> Make a sound, Sophia. Welcome back to Craft Services, where we talk about the movies. Each week we talk about a film, and hopefully I have a crew member of that film to talk with us about their experience working on the picture. That was record time. Part just said all the words really fast. Usually I interject and say that we're a podcast, because we are, and we have one, and we talk about movies on the show. 
from time to time. But sometimes we refute claims made by certain guests on the show, and I just want to say, Jim Carrey's Riddler. I understand it's not a very good Riddler performance, but it's still fun to see Jim Carrey on screen. He's very overshadowed by Tommy Lee Jones. Who cares? Uh, in terms of how bad being, Tommy being Lee awesome. Jones... No, being awesome. Oh, boy. We're going to have to have a Batman Forever episode, aren't we? I would love to. Jackson is was kind of desperately pleading to get on the Dark Knight episode, and what did Parth say? Well, you'll see next week, won't you? You'll see next week. At his feet, and he denied me. Yeah, uh, when Jackson and all third party guests are absent, you'll think that it's just Trent and Parth covering the episode because that's it. But enough about next week's episode. This <gasps> week's episode. Did we interview someone? That's think... like half the show, right? Yeah, I would say so. I mean. Like, it'd be really awesome if we had, like, a camera operator. But more specifically, a, the Steadicam operator Ooh. of Christopher Nolan's 2008 modern masterpiece, The Dark Knight. The first film to be shot on IMAX. Ever. Yeah. That's, like, narrative film. But, yeah. But what else did he work on? Pulp Fiction and Do the Right Thing? What a cool, professional, well-rounded guy. Yeah, I would say this is a pretty great episode. Parth, wasn't it funny when we did... We tried to do this interview the first time, and he was, like, outdoors by the pool, and we were just going to have really oh, yeah, bad, we... We were gonna have a really bad interview, and after the first question, he was like, hey, guys, this sucks. Let's do this tomorrow when and I'm then, indoors. Yes. And then we conducted a badass formal interview. That you're about to hear, and you'll be able to hear they had, like, a month-long process um, setting up the shoot for The Dark Knight because they had to work with IMAX cameras. You can hear about how he was in the, in the, sh- in the shop for do the right thing when the trash can yes right these details of the interview parth remembers them um it seems like one of our guests wants to interject i know i just was i have a question how did they um do like in the dark night when he's driving through the shopping mall on the motorcycle was that was that the guy that you interviewed did he hold the camera no that's that that well i mean that's Whoa, he was the a camera that's that's operator, a no? he will well, you'll get to hear how about 50% of that movie was shot by Wally Pfister because yes. he okay. was the he was the A-camera operator well, also most of it. you can't see the dolly track. Wally Pfister well, being the it's DK on a, it's of on the project. A, it's on a, yeah. Oh. They rig it there. Okay. Yeah, I'm just like smart about movies. That's what I do. Right, Sophia? Parth, this is like your favorite movie yes. all time, no? It's like, it's up there. I, ha- like I had a top. Time? Is it in your top four of on Letterbox? Time? Not of all. Wait, this time. is your favorite. There's Nolan? nothing to be ashamed no, of. No, I said one of them. Yeah. This is your favorite Nolan. Uh, it's up my, there. This is my favorite Nolan. Wow. Inception. I, I, Inception has been my long time answer. Interstellar has been mine. Jackson. In- Interstellar's me. imperfect. I was absent from class and Jackson texted me. I just did a sermon on Interstellar. It's true. We had an entire class about it. So how could I not? It's crazy having this many people in the pod. I know. Like, Sophia, you haven't said much. There are, two are you are you excited for this interview? Yeah. Wait. Are you 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 weren't there? Is that why you're not excited? Or wait, but just as a listener, as a fan of the show. Sophia, are where are they? Yeah, I'm excited. Wait, Sophia, what are your ten seconds on the Dark Knight? Sadly, you won't be present for the discussion. I don't know what happens in the Dark Knight. Sophia thought that the Dark Knight was the one with. Jim Carrey. Mm, Batman, I don't know who Batman Jim Forever. Carrey is in the movie. Okay. Oh. Right. Well, not in the dark. All right. But we have Batman an interview. Guy. We have an interview with Bob Gorlick. Yeah. He was an excellent man. He was very nice. He was kind enough to give us his time. And you're lucky enough to hear his nice little words talk about his experience in the film industry. So uh, 
in the words of a great man. And uh, here we go. Everybody, and welcome to our interview with Bob Gorlick. He's worked on such films as Pulp Fiction, Do the Right Thing, Punch Drunk Love, and our film for today, The Dark Knight. Thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. So just to start off, what, what would you say your relationship with film was at a young age? You know, at a young age, not very much. Uh, never really had any interest um, in becoming a filmmaker uh, when I was young, um, you know, preteen or teenager. Um, but I was exposed, you know, my dad was a graphic designer and art director um, for print work. And so I was exposed at an early age to the arts and photography because my dad incorporated some still photography into his work. Um, but I never really thought about filmmaking. Um, it wasn't until uh, I went to college and uh, was studying um, liberal arts because I really had no clear idea of exactly what I wanted to do. Um, I, I got a job at the student union. They had a uh, Tuesday afternoon film screening program. And I discovered that I could make $5 an hour as a projectionist for that program, uh, just lacing up the films and the projectors. And so through that, I was exposed to a lot of uh, classic movies, European movies, American movies, um, such as uh, like, you know, the French New Wave films uh, from of the late 60s and early 70s mm -hmm. to um, like Ingrid Bergman movies and great American classics. And so from that interest, I decided to take a film theory and criticism class. Uh, this was at Boston University. And I was still taking liberal arts, you know, classes, writing and, and so on. But my interest in movies in general started to increase. So through the theory uh, and criticism, um, you know, you studied a bit of film language. And so from there, I decided to try and take some film production classes. Once I, I sort of connected with that path, I realized that um, BU was a great journalism school and theory and criticism school, um, but not a great product, film production school. So I started looking into that and decided to transfer to NYU, New York University Film School, uh, the following year. So I took some summer classes, which enabled me to not um, skip a beat and start at NYU the following September um, and just go right into film production classes. And so uh, that's that's really how I got started. So uh, besides being uh, it, like infatuated with the whole concept of production, how did you more specifically find yourself in the camera department? Um, I guess it just came natural to me, um, you know, because of the, the small background that I had in photography, you know, with my father, it just sort of, uh, it really felt natural to me to, to, to want to become a cinematographer. Um, and so even at NYU, um, they put you into these small groups and like one person will be the DP, one person will be the editor, the other person will do sound, et cetera. I did my best to uh, try to work as a cinematographer. Um, didn't work out my first year. Like uh, I just got in there a little bit too late. And there were already people who were shooting. 
uh, as, as the DPs of these small groups. So I ended up editing my first um, project, which was a documentary. And it was really challenging, but I did love it. And through this process, I realized that like this was definitely the path that, you know, gave me great interest and passion. So I kept just working towards um, being becoming a cinematographer. Um, so you're credited as a Steadicam operator on a lot of movies. And we were wondering, how did you, you know, come to be that? Uh, well, after graduating NYU, so I, you know, uh, found myself in New York City, sending out resumes um, to production companies to try and get work as a production assistant. And uh, I was sending out like probably like 50 to 100 resumes a week. Mm-hmm. And um, eventually someone called me and said, hey, do you want to be a PA on on this little, you know, non-union movie? So I was like, sure. And then, you know, once I got there, I realized try and chat up the, D, you know, the cinematographers and the camera assistants and the operators and let them know, you know, that that's where my interest laid. And I felt like if I could bring them coffee at the right moment, I could get their attention and uh, and sure. get their help a little bit. So, you know, that's how it really got started. Mm-hmm. Now, specifically uh, as to Steadicam, cut to like two or three years later after graduating, I'm working as a PA and kind of a loader, you know, on films and commercials. And I met um, on a job, Ted Churchill, who was one of the original New York-based Steadicam operators. Mm -hmm. Uh, Garrett Brown invented the Steadicam, and Ted was one of the first people to actually buy one and market himself as an owner operator of a steady cam. And, and he kind of created that position as a specialist. I kind of latched on to him. He was very charismatic, very highly intelligent, very funny, and, and very um, interested in young people's interest in steady cam and, and helping make that field grow. And so he took me under his wing a little bit. And uh, I worked as a second assistant for him on a number of uh, commercials and occasionally he would bring me in on, on a movie and uh, would invite me to his loft on the other side of Manhattan and show me all of his equipment and how he organized it and how he approached preparing for jobs. So it was really Ted that, that helped me out the most in the beginning. So I guess from a technical standpoint, what makes the Steadicam as good as it is at what it does? Um, that's a good question because, you know, we're looking at like 40 years later now and it's still a very viable and desirable tool, you know, even with all the great changes in technology that we, we have. And, you know, over the last 10 years, we've seen drones and, and movies and, you know, gimbaled, handheld gimbal devices really mm-hmm. uh, take shape. But still, Steadicam stands its own against all of that technology. And the thing is that Steadicam works in, I say, like an organic way because yeah, it's it, it's it's a it's a it's a tool. It's a machine. Could you explain also what a Steadicam exactly is? We we know because we're film students, oh. but the listeners at home would love to know your expertise. Basically, it's a uh, you put a camera on a post that has a three-axis gimbal on it. I think most people actually know what Steadicam is by now because it's been around for so long. Mm-hmm. You know, the operator wears a harness or a vest. And then there's a spring-loaded arm that attaches to that vest, which then gets hooked up, connected to the gimbal that's 
mounted on the center post of the mm -hmm. Steadicam and the camera gets placed on top of that. And then, so you, what you have to do is balance the camera on this post to just above um, the center of gravity so that you, you have the post now standing vertical as opposed to horizontal. Because if you put it right at the center of gravity, the whole thing's gonna wanna turn sideways. Mm -hmm. So now you have a vertical positioned camera and any movement from your body that's translated to that gimbaled device is now isolated by the arm and the vest from your body. So you can, you know, you can walk, you can run, you can go up and down stairs uh, and the camera floats, seems to float. It just stays um, steady and does not show the bounce that is transferred from your body. I hope that was not too complicated. No, that's great. So I guess jumping into our main topic of the day, uh, you know, you were a steady cam operator as well as an A camera operator on our movie, The Dark Knight. And we were wondering, you know, it's a pretty big movie. How'd you get, how'd you get that job? Well, uh, the, the DP on that movie, uh, Wally Fister and I uh, uh, went back like probably 10 or 15 years prior to uh, 2007 when we shot The Dark Knight. He was a camera operator working in Los Angeles, as was I. And we had mutual friends uh, and we uh, connected that way and then ended up working on a few jobs together as camera operators. And Wally uh, made the move to uh, be a DP or director of photography. And, uh, in, you know, the, in the beginning, you know, he wasn't getting big movies. He was getting smaller and, you know, either non-union independent movies. And then he started getting bigger um, movies Eventually, you know, he got Batman Begins, which was shot mostly in Canada and the UK. So he was not able to bring an American crew. But uh, by the time The Dark Knight came around several years later, not only was he able to bring who he wanted, but most of the film, well, I would say a little more than half of it was being shot in Chicago. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have those, um, you know, uh, labor, labor union issues. So he asked me to work on the movie. So uh, as the ACAM, what, did you shoot like all the Chicago scenes or were there scenes that were specifically Steadicam or is just any scene you remember filming in particular you'd love to hear about? To be, uh, to be honest, uh, when Wally worked for Chris Nolan, um, they, had a, they had a relationship going back to actually three or four movies by the time they, The Dark Knight came on. I mean, it was Memento one that was shot up in Alaska. I can't remember the name of it. Um, there was a remake. Insomnia? Inso yes, Insomnia. And then yeah. Batman Begins. So they had a shorthand. And Chris really wanted Wally to operate the A-cam. So even mm -hmm. though I'm credited with uh, being the A-camera operator, I mean, I was the primary operator other than Wally. But Wally mm -hmm. did probably 75% of the operating on the movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I would do all the steady cam, and I was used for a second camera quite a bit. And they also utilized me in a way <laughs> I really hadn't been used for before, but it, it turned out to be helpful to them and um, was fulfilling enough for me where Chris is very efficient in the way he works and he never wanted to wait for anything. Um, preparation is a, is a really big deal for him. So they started sending me forward with instructions on how to start to um, sort of build camera positions 
uh, for what they were going to do next. You know, in the beginning, there wasn't a lot of trust there from Chris, but I, you know, after doing it for, for a week or two, and he saw that I was capable of doing it, uh, the trust increased. And uh, so I was set off to do that. I enjoyed doing that. I mean, we've talked to a few people, but we were wondering what uh, a Nolan set is like. You know, uh, it seems like he's very, as you said, very efficient and you had to sort of build up trust with him. But, you know, anything about that experience? I, I mean, I lo- I, Chris is one of the best directors I've ever had the chance to work with. Um, mm-hmm. he is, uh, he's incredibly prepared and he, he, um, he is respectful. He's very demanding, but he's demanding of himself as well, just as demanding. His primary concern is making the movie. Mm-hmm. And so, um, there's not all, <laughs> how do I put this? I mean, he's not a warm and fuzzy guy, you know, and where you can hang around and joke around with that much. Cause he's really focused on what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, he expects a lot. He expects honesty and he, he, you know, like that's one of the things that I really liked about him is that I didn't feel like I had to um, sugarcoat, sugarcoat things or play around with him. I could just tell him what I really thought if asked. And mm-hmm. he was always respectful of that. So we were wondering if you were involved with any of the IMAX shooting. Oh yeah. What, what was that like? Because that's, that was the first movie. I think it was the first movie that really utilized IMAX as the primary camera, you know, for a narrative film. So IMAX prior to this was like really like a scenic documentary kind of camera that was taken out to shoot wide vista shots and not moved around as much as you would, you know, move it on a narrative film into small sets, et cetera. And uh, so, you know, being appreciating preparation the way Chris does, we had like a full month of, prep with these IMAX cameras and they had a whole separate IMAX camera tech team there as well as our normal A camera team or B camera team. And so they were there, the, the IMAX people were there to maintain these cameras and make sure that they were uh, working throughout the entire production. Yeah. It's really heavy for Steadicam. I mean, that was the big, you know, big thing about it. Um, no one had really ever used it that way before, but you know, I found it challenging but really so exciting too, because we, you know, we were doing something that had never really been done. And also there are benefits for, if you look at them that way as benefits for shooting uh, IMAX on Steadicam in that, first of all, the camera is so heavy that the horizon issue of like, of a floating left and right off horizon camera um, becomes easier to deal with because of the, just the the mass of the camera. It just wants to stay where it is. And the other thing is that the film is so big that you, so large and heavy that the mags can only hold four, 500 feet of film stock. And with the film stock being that size and being running at four perf instead of two perf, you only get two minutes of film in a magazine. Oh my gosh. (laughs) As opposed to like four. So every two minutes you'd have to dock the machines and uh, they'd reload it. And the reloads take a lot longer than a normal 35 millimeter camera. Also Um, the film runs horizontally through the camera instead of vertically. And you have to open up the top of the camera. The whole top comes off um, and of the mag. Yeah. Of the camera. And um, it would take, you know, five to six minutes to reload as opposed to like 
30 to 40 seconds. So I'd get a break, which is mm-hmm. nice. And also just the fact that everyone knew how heavy it was made people a little more um, sympathetic, sympathetic. Yes. To, towards me and, and what, you know, I was trying to do and, you know, gave me everything I needed to, uh, to succeed. So you, you spoke a little bit that it took like a month of like trial and error, I think, or prep for the, uh, I'm, and was that just figuring out literally how do we operate this and use this the way we need to use it? Yeah, it wasn't just, I mean, it wasn't for me. It was for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, it was to try different lenses, shoot in different conditions, make sure that the video could be transferred properly because the video assist on those cameras was was uh, not quite as advanced as what we had on 35 millimeter cameras. Yeah, we all had a, we had significant uh, prep time and I didn't have a month. I had about a week. I had like mm-hmm. f- four or five days and we started shooting in Chicago in, in the bank. It's the, you know, the opening sequence of the movie. Classic. The bank heist. Oof. Yeah. The prologue. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I was literally running on those hard marble floors with this camera. And, you know, it was pretty intense for the first couple of days. So to become a Steadicam operator, uh, do you have to like buy, like make the huge investment of buying your own kit and then you become the wanted commodity because so few people have and are able to operate their own? Uh, yes. I mean, even nowadays... You really have to buy your own kit and, you know, learn how to use it and market yourself that way. Um, When I started, there were only a few people doing it. So there was very much that sense of like, you know, I'm a specialist and I, you know, there weren't that many other people doing it um, Mm -hmm. throughout the U.S. or even, you know, globally. Um, Now there are thousands and thousands. I mean, every time you look at television, you see a steady cam. You know, in sporting, you see like 10 Steadicams running around in the background. And mm-hmm. it's, it's very commonplace now. So I would say like, you know, the competition, there's there's many more different like levels of market for Steadicam operators now. It's not just a tool that's used on, on movies. It's used everywhere. And, uh, you know, I know a lot of young people who have bought Steadicam rigs and they've come from all different departments from grip from locations people to um, electricians who are buying rigs. They want to be operators. And, um, you know, the technology has really changed so much now. You you know, I talked earlier about keeping the horizon level. You don't even have to do that anymore. Um, These new rigs do it automatically. They have stabilization. Mm -hmm. Your operating becomes less. It's a lot. You can learn. You can learn the skill a lot faster now. But being a camera operator is a lot more than just operating a camera. So those skills actually still take some time. You know, the politics, the nuances of storytelling, how to work with directors, how to work with actors, that kind of thing. So speaking of Batman and Steadicams, you've worked on another Batman movie as a Steadicam operator. Uh, You worked on Batman Returns. Yeah. Yeah. What are the odds of that? Very different Batman too. So you know we're yeah. Tim Burton fans. What was that like? Uh, again, you know Tim was great. Uh, Tim is also very prepared. He's not a big Steadicam user. He's not. He wasn't really one to design long interwinding shots or anything. I remember like what I did was on stage, uh, 
the winter scenes they had created, you know, fake snow, which was like a foam. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was built on a, on a slant, like a hill. So they couldn't really lay dolly tracks. So I was brought in for a lot of that and for uh, some of the photography in the um, penguins lair, uh, which was water-based. So I was either hard mounted on a little boat or in the water up to my waist or up to my knees. Whoa. Yeah. Cool. cool. Um, another early gig you had is your additional camera assistance on Do the Right Thing. And uh, that's one of your earliest credits. How'd you find yourself there? Uh, God, I have to remember. Um, I mean, back in that time in New York, I just seem to remember that there weren't as many people in the industry. You know, the industry was a lot smaller. I think the film business really grew in the, in the th throughout the mid to late 80s and the 90s. Mm -hmm. in the 2000s i mean it just like film schools popped up everywhere and you know it, it was like the spielberg era era film school mafia you know that inspired <laughs> inspired what we're doing now so yeah that's exactly we're, right we're guilty parties that's right so it was word of mouth you know the uh selection of people to work on movies was a lot smaller so you had a greater chance although now there's so much more product that you know it's sort of balanced out because there's so much content now being produced that there's work for everyone uh, but 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 with that being said uh do you re remember anything about uh about being on set or spike lee uh just because it's such a histor oh, yeah. historical film we feel yeah. inclined to ask there was a sense uh, on that film that, that you know spike was making a very special movie about a very important subject to him and uh you know addressing racism and uh, we all felt that and uh, there are a couple of, like, I know, like, I was inside the pizzeria when it was set on fire. And that's that's something I'll never forget. It just, you know, being out there watching Spike throw the garbage can through the glass window mm -hmm. um, was something I'll never forget. It was a real moment, you know, for me and for everyone. It had a lot of meaning behind it. I was very happy to have been on that movie. And everyone collaborated you know, Spike was wonderful. Like he treated, I was very young. I was kind of new at what I was doing. He, there was, there was respect from him towards our enthusiasm for making the movie. Mm -hmm. Really enjoyed that. So were you operating a camera or were you? Since no, was not on that movie. I was, I was a second assistant. Mm -hmm. So I was the guy who did the clapper, you know, cool. uh, okay. and assisted uh, first assistant. And the operator. Great. I mean, this is for for so early in your career. I'd be trust me. Anyone would be happy to do the slate for, for yeah. do the right thing. Yeah, like you know, I was talking earlier about you know being a PA and going up to camera people. I mean, that's exactly what I would do. Is I would say, hey, can I do the slate? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it was yeah. some big deal, and I was so excited and felt like I was being you know like part of the camera department. And for them, they were like, yeah, good. I don't really want to do that. Get some kid who wants to do it, let him do it. But they taught me how to do it. Pro you know what I mean? They taught me how to do it. Like yeah. they said, you, know, you put the slate in, you know what lens it is. After five years of doing the slate, it can only be so exciting. But if it's your first day on set, it's very exciting. Exactly. I mean, Do the Right Thing is like one of the most influential film school films. I mean, it was it was one of the movies we had to see freshman year film. Uh, and one of another you know, really influential film you worked on is Pulp Fiction. Again, Steadicam operator. And we saw in your reel that you shot, you know, the foot massage monologue. 
as they walk through the apartment and I believe the scene of like Bruce Willis like running like through the field and through the fence, right? Yeah, going back to get his watch. Mm-hmm. Cool. On his way to the apartment, yeah. So how how did you get involved with that? What was working with Tarantino like? Um, I got that job through a guy named Paul Hellerman, who was a, a line producer who I'd worked with on a non-union movie called um, can't remember. <laughs> it's a long time ago. Sure. Um, oh, the Philadelphia Experiment Part Two. So uh, that was a movie that I came in on and did a, a, another pretty complicated Steadicam shot on that movie where I started, you know, walking with the camera, stepped onto a crane. Crane lifted me up. I stepped off the crane onto a roof, then across a plank onto another rooftop, then onto another crane. Crane took me down. I stepped off the crane, walked, and got onto a moving golf cart. (laughs) So that was the Philadelphia Experiment Part 2. Paul Hellerman remembered that and was involved with Pulp Fiction, and so he he recommended me to Quentin, and that's how I got the job. Mm -hmm. Um, Quentin was, you know, just as you would expect, quirky, eccentric, full of passion. Mm. You know, everything was thought out. Uh, He had the whole pulling apart of the chain link fence thing Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, well, well thought out already. Um, I just had to make it work with what they presented me with. Mm -hmm. So they, I'm not going to give away how it was done, but they had a special effects person there working the fence. And we just, it took a couple of tries to work it out to make it seamless. So at the time, had you like seen Reservoir Dogs? Like, were you a fan first or was he just some guy? No, no. I knew exactly what I was getting into. I was so excited. I remember getting the call. I was actually in Memphis working on a movie called The Client. And uh, Paul Hellerman called me and I was, you know, he told me it was Quentin Tarantino movie. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is going to be like, thank you. You know, because I loved Reservoir Dogs. It was so groundbreaking and different. And those are the kind of movies that I like to watch. So obviously I'd like to work on a movie like that. And arriving in Pulp Fiction, there was an air. People often ask me, did you know, did you have any idea like it was going to be this iconic movie? And I would say not iconic, but we knew that it was special. We knew it was going to be different mm-hmm. and very successful. And, you know, we had not successful. I think we all felt like this is something really cool to work on. Especially with like the one take of going through the apartment, the whole foot massage monologue. Um, was that, I guess, uh, in general terms, are were you doing like 10 plus takes or do you remember? Yes, I do remember. I think we did that. It was more than 10. You know, it was like the better part of an entire day. Jeez. So I, I'm going to say we did that maybe 20 times. Wow. I was I was like uh, Gumby by the end of the day. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we stopped and started. You know, they had to get their lines right. There's a lot of dialogue. So I wouldn't say every take was a complete take, you know, mm-hmm. a full four minutes. Sometimes, you know, we'd get through half of it and then restart. But it was a very physical day. But I really, that scene was so special. The writing was so brilliant. Like, I... I just put all of that out of my mind. I was, you know, a lot younger. I was, I think I was 32, 33 maybe at the time. And was just so excited and happy to be there that all of that, when I look back at it on it now, it's like, how the hell did I do that? 
Yeah, but yeah, I'm yeah. I'm sure in the in the moment you were transcending because yeah, absolutely because you're the foot fucking master. Ah. I don't be tickling. I don't be tickling or nothing. Yeah, right. Um, so another uh, you know eclectic director you worked with was Paul Thomas Anderson on Punch Drunk yep. Love, um, yep. and we were wondering, and was that Steadicam also? Yes, and very long takes. Mm-hmm. Very long takes. He he is one of those people you know who loves Steadicam and loves to do long, complicated takes, and many many takes of those takes. Did did you talk a lot with Rob? I mean, I'm sure you had to with like Robert Ellswit. You know, Robert's a man. He's very quiet, so I wouldn't say I talked a lot with him at all. I mean, he would just oh, really, yeah. He like he's one of those DPs. Like the less you say, the better. Mm-hmm. You know, he'll let you know if he wants something. Mm-hmm. So not much interaction at all. Did you talk at, at all with PTA, or can you describe yeah. what he's like on set? Yeah. So, so, so yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson was he was the one that would talk to me most about what he wanted and what the shots were going to be. And he was very direct, very matter, you know, kind of all business also was really focused on making his movie, not warm and fuzzy either, but respectful and, uh, you know, had really interesting ideas, things that I would never think of or come up with. For example, example, starting a scene in the office with um, Adam Sandler, sitting on an Apple box with a 40 millimeter anamorphic lens with a thousand foot mag on the camera. So you can run more than four minutes and sitting on the Apple box for like two and a half to three minutes, just sitting there with a steady cam on while he's on the phone. <laughs> you know, not, not a thing you normally think of doing with steady cam, but then, you know, getting up with him and walking through the warehouse, you know, the garage door opens and, you know, this huge wide anamorphic lens just pans around to see really nothing going on outside mm. that's i think it's very interesting and then you hear you know you hear the car crash from there yes mm-hmm. you hear it you know adam sandler's got his cup of coffee he's yeah. gotten up from his desk and then you hear this incredible car crash and you don't get to see it mm-hmm. i think it's brilliant yeah so i guess the last movie or movies i guess we want to talk to you about i'm a huge tom cruise fan and you've uh, it, on your IMDb, it says you were accredited as Steadicam operator on Far and Away and uncredited on Jerry Maguire. And if you have anything about Tom Cruise, I'd be yeah, very so, happy to listen. Um, it's funny because I actually did more work in Jerry Maguire than I did on Far and Away. That's ironic. Um, yeah. The crediting system. <laughs> you know, there was something that was going on in the 90s with credits. And like as a Steadicam operator, you don't often work on the entire movie, you know, every single day, you know, you'd come in, they'd hire you as a specialist and that's what was happening. And uh, they weren't giving credits because credits meant screen time in theaters. And if it was a really big movie and they had a ton of people working on it, they had limited screen time for credits. So they just leave the Steadicam operator off the credits. I made a small attempt to try and get that corrected back in, in the day, but no one really cared. So, uh, but so Madness. far and away, I show up like yeah. halfway. I'm sorry. I, I think Parth just said madness because we were both kind of in awe by the split second of time it would take to put your name in size eight font on screen. Yeah, that's what I thought. And the you know the two hundred and fifty dollars it might cost them to you know add the Chiron. I don't know, but that's what was you know there are a lot of Steadicam operators who went through the same thing, and I went through it 
there was a period where that was happening. And even today, you know, if you watch a streaming show, the credits go by so fast, they don't even mention the B camera team. Yeah. And you know, often like their work is more than half of what's in the show. So anyway, so Tom, I showed up about halfway through the movie when they were out in Montana for the land race scene. And the, the, the camera department was huge. It was um, two full camera trucks uh, filled with 65 millimeter camera gear, probably 20 people in the camera department. You know, typically at that time, a camera department would consist of like six people. So I was like, they had two, two Steadicams running at the same time. Greg Lunsgaard, who's the A-camera Steadicam operator on the show, right away, I mean, the first day that Tom, that I was there and Tom came out on, you know, they brought him out and he gets out of a van and he came up to everybody and said, good morning. And awesome. he, he looked at me and he's like, you're new. What's your name? I told him and he said, nice to meet you. And he remembered my name from, from that point on. He's, he's a very, very outgo, you know, he's very friendly. And I think he, he had a lot of respect. He didn't take his position for granted. And then the same thing on Jerry Maguire. He looked at me and he said, I know you from somewhere. And I told him and he was That's like, awesome. hey, welcome. Welcome back. Recognized by Tom Cruise. And you thought you were you were recognizing him. He recognized you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A lot of the guests that we've had on have worked with Tom Cruise. And a lot of them have said, one, like he's we're surprised by how personal he gets with like every person on set because everyone has a story about him and a lot of people say that he's operating on a higher plane of existence and hyper focused yeah i think yeah uh, yeah i i would agree with that he's enlightened <laughs> yes um so our next question is what are you working on now and if you're not working on anything now what are you working on next so uh i have been working on she hulk Oh, from Marvel. Whoa. Whoa. And, Disney crowd. Uh, yeah. Big. So um, just, you know, I'm on uh, the second unit. I'm the A camera operator on the second unit. Mm -hmm. And we just finished uh, two days ago. I'm going to take about three weeks off and then start a movie called Strays mm -hmm. for Universal. I'm told it's a, it's an R-rated dog movie. <laughs> Is it animated? No, no. It's going to be live action. Um, it's about a dog who gathers other dogs from the neighborhood to take advantage of a, uh, a previous owner who mistreated the dog. Are, are, are you expecting CGI like dogs? I see are, it like Home Alone with dogs. Are there going to be like trained dogs? Yeah. Okay, awesome. We'll see. We'll see. Well, are we, are, do you know if the dogs are going to talk? That seems pretty obvious. I don't. I don't think so. Oh, I don't know. Actually, I just got the script, so I, I haven't had a chance to read it, it. It, it. Do you know who's directing it? I do. Josh Greenbaum. Okay. Wait, Parth, you want to ask the, the big kahuna final? Yeah, oh, wait, wait, wait. I, I, wait I, I, I have a She-Hulk question. Do you know if the She-Hulk, was it just like a lady painted green or was it a big CGI Hulk sort of situation? Great big, great big CGI Hulk. Got it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. It's going to be yeah. awesome. I'm I, oh uh, I'm sure. Do you have Do you have any idea when that's coming out? I really don't. Okay, and I'm sure you you're up to the wazoo in NDAs because Disney's, yes. you know, true. got their claws in everything. But uh, yeah, Trent, you think it's time? Should I ask the big Kahuna final question? Oh boy, I'm I'm nervous. Yeah. Oh, don't be. be. It's you should be. <laughs> oh, uh, I was notified. Um, so what is the last great movie that you watch? And it can be a first time watch. Or it can be a rewatch. 
Whatever's on your mind. Oh, yeah. Um, the last great movie, not a streaming show. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna, it was The French Connection. I rewatched that recently. Nice. Yeah. I, um, 1970s filmmaking to me was like one of the last great periods of American cinema. I mean, there were just great directors making great movies. You know, I don't mean to be an old fuddy-duddy, but I mean, no one's making new new stories anymore. It's all, you know, revisited successful movies being revamped or superhero movies. And I have nothing against those. Those are those have a place. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see a little more balance. Um, diversity. Diversity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's I think having said that, the diversity is actually shifted from movies to streaming. Yeah. So I find like there's so much amazing content to stream now. So many great shows. I just watched two amazing, I thought they were amazing um, streaming series. One was White Lotus, mm-hmm. which I think is just really well done in every way. And uh, I've watched three episodes of the new Nicole Kidman show, Nine yes. Perfect Strangers. Mm-hmm. Have you seen it? No, no, I just saw, I've seen We've commercials. Seen the HBO. Oh. Yeah. yeah. So good. And, you know, so what you have now is these um, prime film actors, movie actors moving over into that type of work. Limited series. Limited yeah. series, yeah. You know, I worked on Stranger Things for three years, yes. three seasons. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that show, along with like, I think Breaking Bad really started this whole thing. Just, you know, amazing writing, amazing shows. It can just be hard to navigate the tv world sometimes because it's like oversaturated with shows that people claim are like the best thing ever yeah yeah there's a lot out there well um i think that just about wraps it up thank you so much to our guest bob gorlick he's worked on such films as pulp fiction punch drunk love and our film for today christopher nolan's the dark knight thanks for coming on thank you so much for having me really enjoyed it Back to the podcast. Wasn't that a great interview? Trent, is that you? I I love the Dark Knight and I love our special guest. Which one? That's hurtful. There's two right now. Garlic. Bob Garlic. (laughs) The guy we just spent like an hour with? Wait, weren't you there while we conducted the interview? Yes, and I loved it. Oh. Wow. That's more than some people were able to say. No, after listening to it, it was an incredible interview. It was fascinating. Chronologically, I don't know if you if you guys have heard the interview. So, Trent, uh, I would say this was a great interview. I really enjoyed it. being present while it happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, about half of us were. I enjoyed it. It was a long, long time ago. No, I agree. Um, I think there's some interesting info, right? Yeah, a lot of insightful information. I feel like there's not been enough Joker talk from you, Trent. Come on, it's Part the Dark Knight interview. I'm saving it because part thing about all the Joker clips that it's are true. coming I in know. the Dark Knight discussion, it's going to be chaos. This is the the it's uh, we're, we're every gonna, line of Joker dialogue is going to be in the episode. We're going to be <laughs> we're just going to play we're just going to play we just th- play the film. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
yeah, I mean, like... What if we did the whole film, but we just did commentary? Mm. Um, well, uh, if you, you guys couldn't see that, but Trent was pretending to faint. Faint, because that was such a good idea. Yeah, it was. I liked it. Let's keep that in our back pocket. Um, For the 100th episode. You think we'll make it? To 100? Yeah, we will. Oh, yeah, there's plans. Well, Trent, I thought that was quite the interview, right? Yes, I concur. Uh, we're saving our Joker impressions for next week, where we're gonna. I'm literally. Well, gonna, I'm some gonna, of us are. Saving I'm gonna our punch Joker a hole in the wall and lose my security deposit. Is how excited I'm gonna get. Well, next week, uh, you can hear us for our discussion. Maybe some of the discussion guests here will make an appearance, or maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. Or maybe yes. They won't. Um, but that's pretty exciting. And then after that. We have something, We I guess we have well, a we small have, big thing. We have a small big thing. And then we have a big, big thing. We have a large, fat thing uh-huh. waiting. It's actually like, a, the big thing is like a three-part package of three. One could say six-part, if you were to include everything, right? I'd say cumulatively, cumulatively you have four things coming your way. Four things? Before the year is up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. This is correct. Yeah. Yeah, there's such a tease. Yeah, well, I know. I really wonder what's coming. You guys needed. Uh, yeah, we're really you need Google Drive permission to the spreadsheet to like know the secret vocab. If you, if you if you meet us in person, we'll be really secretive. We'll definitely oh. not tell you exactly what's about to happen. Parth and I also teased in the last episode that if you see us in person, we'll tell you about the person who was mean and sent us uh, a mean email reply and saying no, 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 the person was not mean. But the person was definitely not happy to hear from us. <laughs> and also, <laughs> sorry, I don't know where that laugh came from. Um, but the person is famous enough that we can't say it here in the pod in fear. Of and, and definitely because the story re- also, it involves knowing his email. Yes. So so we can't hand out that sort of thing. Well, or we're going to be really excited tuning in next week because we're not going to know what's coming out now. Correct? You have lots of things coming up. Oh yeah, we were really ambiguous about yeah. what's coming. Yeah. Oh well, next week. Next week is the discussion, and then after that, uh-huh. um, uh huh. Hi there. Yeah, but that was part of Kermit the Frog voice. Oh, part of our, Christmas. Wait, our 69th episode is coming out. <laughs> Maybe something fun will be played. Yeah, done for that. Get through a sex movie. Porn. Do a porn. Okay. Enough of that. It's the specials. The 69th episode. Well, is that sp- true? Holy what's fuck. Special? The special is the small thing before the big package deal thing. Well, we can't we can't yeah, reveal well, that just there's yet. There's a lot coming. I'll, I'll tell you once we start recording. <laughs> okay. All right. Are we ready? All right. Uh, I think that we're done. Yeah. Make sure to follow us on all our social media and um, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. If you're hearing this, go on Apple Podcasts and go and scroll down to the bottom and give us a five star review. Okay. <laughs> Please. Please. We only have 31 five-star reviews. I want 32 five-star reviews. I'd, I'd go so far as to say I want 35 five-star reviews. I want 36 five-star reviews. Okay, Jackson, let's not get... Also, we only have like 450 Instagram followers. I would like the full 500. Just like the round up, nice and clean, round number. Uh, please still follow us. Oh, we also have a Twitter that Parth runs. I manage he's that. The, he's the Twitter king. That's what I like to call myself. Parth's the content creator. He's passionate. Um... All right, guys, see you next week. And uh, let's just say... Uh, it's, uh, I'm the Joker, uh, baby. I, some people just want to watch the world. Tune in to next week's Craft Services episode. Hi. Bye. Bye.